All right. Well, I'm going to call us to order. And if I could get a couple helpers, you guys on that side and that side, Roger, just get those passing around. Um, that's a handout for when we get to, God willing, week three. So we're going to finish week two and get to week three and Maybe we'll actually catch up with plan to what the actual week is, but if we don't, I'm quite all right with it. Um, so I, I wanted to say up front, I'm really grateful for the work of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, who created a three-year curriculum for core seminars, which is uh, what we're engaged in. Um, and so after this seminar, or maybe about halfway through this seminar, I'm going to be asking, like all of you, as well as maybe just the rest of the church, where you would like to go next, what study you'd like to do next. So, I mean, we could do Old Testament survey, New Testament survey, church history, systematic theology, marriage, singleness, parenthood, biblical manhood and womanhood, suffering, Christians in the government, Christians in the workplace. Those would be just some of the topics that we could choose from. And so the idea is, as long as people are interested and people keep showing up, I'm happy to just keep being, teaching more and more core seminars. I uh, also want to say to you, I uh, wanted you to remember something, that uh, it's okay if you haven't thought of reading or studying the Bible this way before. Um, and so you're, you're learning something, some of you may be learning something that's brand new, uh, and I, I don't want ever the intention to be like, oh, where have I been all my life that this wasn't, I didn't know how to do this and like somehow that's wrong or something. Uh, that is not the case. I hope that what you're looking at it as is exactly um, or is actually an adventure, uh, something new and a new way to discover the Bible. Uh, the aim of our time together is to enjoy reading the Bible. That's the aim. Uh, I don't want you to feel overwhelmed. Uh, I don't want you to feel less than um, like this is beyond you. The aim is to enjoy reading the Bible and to discover more amazing things about who God is and what he's up to in the world and to move one step closer to his son, Jesus. And so if you have felt overwhelmed at any point at all, let's just all take a collective big breath together and get ready for the adventure because... The goal of, just also remind you, in case you haven't been in kind of like, this is a little bit like a school setting, right? It's kind of a classroom seminar kind of thing. Um, the goal when you're learning is dissonance. The goal is to actually be uncomfortable. Uh, that's the hope, is that, oh, I didn't know this before. This is awkward. I'm not quite sure how to process this information or apply this information. That's exactly what you want. Otherwise, you'd probably just be bored. Uh, and so we want that dissonance. Uh, my wife reminded me of a really good tip last week after last week's uh, seminar. Um, and she, it, it's a really good strategy to have when you're in a class like this and taking a seminar like this, when there's a lot of information that you might feel like there's a lot of information coming at you and maybe a lot of it in particular is new. And the strategy is this, grab one thing. What's the one thing that you want to write down on your handout or maybe afterwards and you've written a bunch of things down on your handout that you go back when you maybe the next morning when you wake up and like, okay, out of all that stuff, 
<laughs> what's the one thing I want to grab and start to apply to my Bible study and therefore to my life. Um, I've been learning skiing, been going skiing every week. Um, a lot of those times so far has been with the guy walking in right now. Uh, and, and Paul is like one of those guys that could be on like ESPN X Games uh, for skiing. And so what's really great is that he doesn't overwhelm me with like, here's the 14 things that we're going to work on with like how you're going down the mountain right now, you toddler. Uh, he gives me one thing. Like, here's the one thing I want you to think about while we're skiing this afternoon. And he'll watch me and then he'll give me that one thing. And then I'll do my best to work on that. And then he might give me something different the next time. And then I'm growing as a skier. It's the same way in Bible study in general and certainly in learning about biblical theology and applying it to how you understand the word. Does that make sense? So don't, don't give up. Remember, this is going to take effort. Uh, as we've all probably heard in our lives, most good things do take some effort. Uh, so when the dissonance comes, remember that you... There's two ways to think about the Holy Spirit when it comes to Bible study, I think. One way is, when I, when I come to the Bible, I want to trust and know, as we've talked about in here, that the Holy Spirit is there ready and willing and excited to help me understand the Scriptures and lead me to Jesus through the Scriptures. The other way to think about the Holy Spirit is, just because you have the Holy Spirit doesn't mean it's not going to take some effort. So it's not like, I just open my Bible, oh, and the Holy Spirit's here, and like, just show me. Um, and he's going to do that to a degree, but he's going to show you a lot more if you dig in along with him and seek to discover things. So uh, that's all by way of introduction, and I hope uh, a little bit of encouragement. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for another evening together. Thank you for, uh, once again, for your word. Father, thank you for macaroni noodles that can get slathered with cheese and bacon and crumblies and for Caesar salad and bread slathered in butter, uh, all that wonderful dairy. Father, thank you now for, as we've just talked about, your Holy Spirit. And I ask, Spirit, now would you guide us into the way of truth? Would you open our eyes to see marvelous things about this word, this scripture, and in this word and scripture? Give us tools that will help us to do that and mutually encourage us together tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I've given you a, a definition of biblical theology the last couple of weeks that I'm not happy with. And so I'm going to give you a definition that I think is easier because uh, I think it's too hard to remember. And I want you to easily remember things over time. So here's the new biblical theological definition, and I'm completely ripping off the Bible project, all right? So biblical theology is a discipline that helps people to experience the Bible as one unified story that leads to Jesus. So that's on your handout for week three. Uh, we're going to finish week two, but it's right, <laughs> it's right there for you. So Biblical theology is a discipline that helps people to experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. Or you could just say, 
the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. That's what biblical theology is about. That would even be simpler. Okay, um, so that that's what we're that's our aim, um, and our aim in that is to always in your reading know where you are in the story. Right, like that. That's what we want out of this class, out of this seminar is so that you can know always where you are in the story because that helps you understand the rest of the story and that bit of the story, right? That's what we've been learning, this context of the grand meta-narrative of the Bible. And so I want to give you and make sure that you have at least one grid for the overarching story of the Bible. So if you'll remember, we've talked about this uh, already, but there's four key movements that are in the entire story of the scriptures. Do you remember what those are? It starts with what? Creation. And then what happened? The fall. Or you could think about like man rebelled, right? So there's creation, then man fell or rebelled. And then what happened? There was rescue. And then that leads to restoration or if you like new creation, because then you can kind of think that there was creation and now there's new creation as the beginning and kind of the end of the beginning of the story. And so that's the big story. That's one way to think about all these other themes that we're going to see really are in, in those three, four, or excuse me, those four major movements of the scripture. I have a homework assignment for you. So for next time, what I want you to do is I want you to draw on it. So I want you to, here's what I want you to do. Uh, I don't want you to see my manuscript. Let's see if the technology will work. There it is. So I want you to draw a line and then I want, this is my story. And I want you to have your creation and then I want you to try and see if you can get it into like four major movements and I want you to write out your story and see what are some of the major, you know, what are some of the major milestones, you know, so uh, creation for me, LA, born in LA, and then at 5.5 years old, probably a big marker was uh, my biological father uh, went for groceries and never came back. And so then back to Minnesota, um, you know, you could leap all the way up here and Susan, oh, look at that. Yeah, there's Susan. And then, you know, five years later, you know, kids <laughs> came along. Just kidding, Nehemiah. <laughs> So this, this will be, I think, just a really practical way for you to understand, right? If someone just jumps into one part of your, of your story, right, they know a certain part of you. 
They know you to a certain degree. But then isn't this often the case when you hear, like if you go back and you, if you were to hear, like maybe you didn't know that I had a father that, well, he wasn't a father. He was a biological sperm donor. And then he just left. And that created ripple effects in my life. It's a big part of my story. And when you hear that part of my story, you probably understand things about me that you didn't know before. And then you see, when you start going through this, I think you're going to start to see this idea, right? Like this bit in relationship to this other bit, and how does that relate to the totality of who I am and what my story looks like? So um, I may call on someone to, you know, share a little bit of their story next time. Um, so there's some homework for you for next time. All right, last time we were talking about book, biblical theology as guardian and guide of the church. We made it through biblical theology as the guardian and how it can guard against all kinds of wrong doctrine and kind of false Christianities, if you will. And so now I want to talk about biblical theology as church guide. It's not just a guard. It's also a guide to right living and a life of flourishing. So by that, I mean, I'm going to give some examples. How does, how does biblical theology guide good preaching, good counseling, good outreach and engagement of the church, and good corporate worship and church structures? So first, biblical theology is a guide to good preaching and teaching. Biblical theology provides a guide to good preaching because when you sit down to study a text and prepare a sermon— or a teaching, you know, these could apply to just um, teaching. As, and, and by teaching, I just mean any time where you're teaching someone else, right? You're instructing someone else. So it doesn't have to be here at Grace. It can be in your home. You're teaching your wife something, or you're teaching your husband something, or you're teaching your kids or a friend. When you sit down to study a text and prepare a sermon or a teaching, biblical theology keeps you from proof texting or telling an imbalanced story of redemption. One author compares it to having a court sense in basketball. You don't just focus on dribbling the ball to the hoop, right? Have you ever seen like someone who you know is new when they're starting out with basketball because it's like like this, right? Like they're not aware. But when they get really good, it's what? It's this through the legs and like looking around. You have a court sense. You know what's going on around you. You're always on the you're always aware of the location of your teammates and defenders on the court, as well as the flow of play. So that's what biblical theology can do, is keep you from being focused down on something, but rather having a good view of the text in the right canonical context. It helps you to see what your text has to do with the person and work of Jesus. It wards off moralism so that one is preaching a Christian sermon. It rightly relates faith and works. It ensures that every sermon is part of the big story. All right, so two weeks ago you saw an example of this, um, at the risk of calling my preaching good preaching. You, you saw an example of me trying to do that. We got to Romans chapter 3. It's in verse 25 where Jesus is compared to the mercy seat, right? And so the entire first half of the sermon of my manuscript, which was, I think, 11 pages that morning, five pages, was just taking us through 
Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers with components of the tabernacle and the temple and the sacrificial system and the priesthood, all of it necessary to understanding Romans 3, 21 to 26, and specifically Christ as mercy seat. And you saw that if, if we didn't know those aspects of the story, we're not going to understand what Paul is on about when he calls Jesus the mercy seat. And I had, I had never actually seen that before in all the times that I've read Romans. I hadn't seen that in Romans 3. And so I discovered something new, which is the whole point, right, to, to understanding and being able to orient and, and not just pull this little piece out or misunderstand this piece, but it becomes this exciting discovery that when I know all these other pieces of the story and I start thinking about and meditating on those things, now the excitement is the joy of that discovery and seeing something more than anything else about Jesus that I hadn't seen before. That Jesus himself is the seat of my reconciliation with God. That I have this problem that I'm not reconciled to this God, but that there's a break in the relationship. This place that is the very presence of God. That's what we want, right? Like, I want to get closer to God. I want to know more of God. But there's this huge problem. And Jesus now becomes the way in which that I draw near to God. And I, I wouldn't have known that without knowing the whole story. So you see, that simply, that's what I want for you. I want you to have discoveries like that. I want you to have aha moments like that. I want you to be sitting at your table with your cup of coffee and your egg, as every person should start the morning with. And for like fireworks to be going off for you, you guys. I mean, that's what I so want for you because that's what studying the Bible is about. It's not about being able to throw around facts and information. It's not, being able to, it's not about being able to impress your friends because look at what I see that you didn't see. It's about coming into contact with the living God and understanding something more about him and seeing him as beautiful so that I can take that into my life. So that every time that I feel like there's this problem and there's something that's separating me from the Father, I can remember, wait a second, that's not truth. That's not truth. I know Jesus is my mercy seat. I know Jesus is the reconciling agent between the Father and I. It's just like, you know, someone else who does this really well. Have you watched, uh, have you watched movies by M. Night Shyamalan Malakalamalamalayan? Y'all know him? So like The Sixth Sense, um, right? You don't. Okay, so if you haven't seen The Sixth Sense, I'm about to destroy the movie for you. So um, it's just the way it is. It's been out long enough. You should have seen it by now. <clears throat> I don't feel bad at all. But it's not until the very end of the movie. I can, I can remember watching The Sixth Sense on a plane with this, this guy named Walt Avra. He was a tall drink of water from Georgia. And uh, Walt didn't have a lot of awareness of kind of like people around him. So he's watching The Sixth Sense. On, we're, we're coming from uh, Cameroon, West Africa. We're flying back to the States. We're on this international. So he's going to get the whole movie in, right? And more. So he's watching this movie, you know, and it's, it's, the whole plane is darkened. A lot of people are sleeping. I, I keep looking over because I know where it's going, and I'm, like, trying to see if he's going to see. gets to the very end of the movie, and he's got the headphones on, right? Like, so, like, he's completely enveloped in his world, and I, it comes right to the end, and he goes, 
Are you saying he was dead the whole time? You know, everybody in our section is waking up. <laughs> yeah, Walt, you're talking really loud. <laughs> and, then, and then it gets that little part where it shows you like the red. And then you see like all the way through this. Then you, you think back in your head. That red was this symbol and Shyamalan was, it was this hint and this clue to every time it was dead people and not live people, every time there was an object of red. So then the next time you watch the movie, you're like, oh my gosh, oh my, oh my word. Like, right? Like that's, that's what understanding the whole story does for you. It opens up those moments where you're going to be reading your Bible in the quiet of your home and your spouse is over there minding their own business. You're going to, are you kidding me, God? Are you saying it was that way the whole time? That's what I want for you is to have those kind of moments. So the, it helps us protect us um, from making wrong, wrong applications as well. We don't want to simply slap an evangelistic trailer onto the end of a sermon. For example, when I was preaching on Romans 3, um, for our non-Christian friends here today, I'd like to end this message about Abraham's circumcision by telling you that you can now receive the free gift of eternal life. Come to Jesus. That wouldn't have made any sense if I would have just treated it like that. Because he wasn't just talking about circumcision. There was so much more that was going on there in relationship to that, right? Or suppose you're teaching a lesson on David and Goliath, like we've talked about in previous sessions. Nobody in Israel's army wanted to fight the giant Goliath who ta taunted them day after day. And then this young, naive shepherd boy, David, shows up to bring his brother's food, refuses the king's armor, picks out five stones, nails that guy right in the forehead with one stone, and then cuts off his head. What are some of the lessons people often take from this story? Well, you know, you have five stones, and, and what those really stand for are faith, hope, love, courage, and strength. And so if you'll take these five stones and hurl them at the unbelief of your Goliath, the Goliath of your unbelief, then you'll be great. Typically, people will talk about David, David's faith or his courage. And you do need David's faith in God to fight big issues in your life, if you want to put it that way. But is that the right way to teach this passage, biblically, theologically? It might be part of it, but that wouldn't be a Christian sermon. A rabbi could preach it that way. Later tonight, maybe, we're going to talk about topology as one of the tools that you need for biblical theology. And the New Testament teaches us to read David as a type of Christ. Jesus and the apostles tell us in a number of places, like Mark 12 or Acts 2, that we're to watch David in order to get a somewhat dim preview of Jesus. So who is David in the Goliath story? He is the spirit-empowered and unlikely king who has come to rescue God's people from God's enemy. So we should be less interested in the Goliath in your life and more interested in the David in your life. Who is the king who will rescue you from God's greatest enemy, sin? In short, if you are in the Sunday gathering, a Sunday school, midweek, small group, on your own studying, Wherever and whenever you're studying God's word, you need biblical theology to do the most important thing to accurately understand, teach, explain, proclaim, 
and apply God's word. That's what we want to do, right? We all want to be what Paul says is to Timothy. I want not to be ashamed. I want to rightly handle the word of truth. Rightly handle. Okay, so it's a guide to good teaching. We need biblical theology for that. Is it warm in here for you? How come every room we get in, it doesn't matter where we are. Oh, someone turned it up to 70. No wonder it's warm. I just want you all to know I had it turned to 64 at 430. All right, biblical theology is a guide to good counseling. Hopefully you're starting to get a sense of how biblical theology is a good guide to all Bible ministry. But let's press it in, especially on counseling. A younger Christian asks us what he should do with his life. A married friend needs encouragement because of difficulties in her marriage. A church member confesses that he struggles with an addictive behavior. Your teenage daughter is concerned about being accepted at school. All of us are confronted with very real issues like this of being human. And so all of us will at one point or another engage in the soul care of another human. And how you respond basically depends on what you think human beings are, what their problem is, and how the Bible speaks to that problem. In a lot of those situations that I just listed, we diagnose the problem as either wrong thinking or wrong behavior. And so for the cure, we turn to the Bible as an answer book to show someone how to think or act right. And the result can be a proof texting kind of approach where we just pull out like a little Bible verse. It's like, here, just take this pill and it will fix you. You simply need to learn, in other words, we tell someone, by the power of the Spirit to think or act differently which isn't altogether wrong, but it's missing the bigger picture, I think. The trouble, of course, is that the story of Adam and Israel should teach us that you can give people all the right thinking in the world and it won't help them. Adam had God in the garden with him telling him precisely how to think. Israel had the prophets speaking on behalf of God, telling them exactly how to act. You can get people to engage in the right behavior for a while at least. For example, Israel had the elaborate structures of the law, as we've been learning in Romans. And we see how that didn't ultimately succeed. A biblical anthropology, however, doesn't finally define us by our behavior or our thoughts. Rather, a biblical biblical anthropology defines us by who we worship. Because the Bible understands that we are fundamentally worshipers. I love how John Piper says that in, in, in one regard this way. Missions exist because worship doesn't. That's why missions exist. Because God wants more worshipers. Because we're here for his glory. That's the purpose. We are fundamentally worshipers. This is graphically and perversely illustrated with Israel's worshiping the gods of the nations instead of worshiping Yahweh. And according to Paul, real change involves moving from idolatry to the worship of the true God. 
Okay, so I hope you heard biblical theology in my prayer for National Sanctity of Life Sunday on Sunday. Because the issue, it's the idolatry of sex that leads to abortion. That's the idolatry. And all these other little idolatries that I pray to. So the issue is, what are we worshiping? We're going to explore that whole theme in the Bible in detail in week eight of this session. But the short version of the answer is right now through the good news. So how do we deal with that? How do we deal with this issue of idolatry? We'll, we'll get much deeper into that. But right now, through the good news and the whole good news, right? So by whole good news, I mean creation, fall, rescue, new creation. That's the good news, not merely rescue. The whole good news, the story of disordered worship and the pursuit of idols in the place of God and what God and Jesus came to do about that is what we want to give people to address these issues. The Christian, the human, caught in sinful actions, destructive beliefs, addictive behaviors, is someone who is worshiping idols, as every fallen human does. And they need the good news. And we need to understand the basic story of humanity as played out in the scriptures as a seeking of false gods. And it's the only way that such wrong pursuits are then healed, is to reveal that idolatry. And part of how we do that is we situate ourselves in the story. We see, like, the writer of the Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun, right? There's nothing new under the sun. So we want to identify with the characters. We want to see how they're operating in the story and see how they got out of that mess or how God brought them out of that mess so that our stories or the stories of those we are trying to help might take a turn. So your friend who needs guidance, are they stuck inside indecision because they have a wrong conception of where history is heading and where they will find ultimate joy? And so they're not situating this decision in the larger story in the sweep of what God is doing so they can rightly understand that. And then what does it look like to move forward? Your friend in a difficult marriage, is she resting her hopes on marriage in such a way that marriage wasn't meant to bear? She understanding in the larger context of what the Bible has to say about marriage and how that represents the marriage between Christ and his church and situating herself in that story to have right expectations. Your friend struggling with addiction. Why does he think he was created? Does he know who he is and who he was meant to be? Has someone been able to play that out so that he knows his story in relationship to the larger story? And these aren't, I'm not saying that they're necessarily immediate panaceas, and, but I think it's a right way to bring the Bible to these issues that we have in people's lives when we're counseling because I believe that the Bible has everything that we need for faith and practice. I honestly believe that. And we have to trust that, you guys. Like, I, we have to go into this world trusting that the scriptures, by the power of the Spirit, under God, in the name of Jesus, are enough. There will be a constant temptation in your life to think that the Bible is not enough. It's been that way in my pastoral life. The horrible situations that have come through my study, people sitting in my study over the past couple of decades, there are times where I think, here's, what, here's the verse I want to share. Is this, is this really? It just feels so paltry right now, Father. But it's what they need. 
That's just my humanity showing itself. Biblical theological counseling refuses to hold out false and temporary goals like an easier or more pleasant life now or tricks and tips for a better marriage. Rather, it holds out the goal, the goals of sanctification and glorification, our transformation into the very image of Jesus as we move one step closer to him because he is in all things, the source, the means, and the goal. So biblical theology tells us, right? It is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Okay, so the Bible, uh, biblical theology is also a guide to good outreach and engagement. So let's think about the church's outreach and engagement with the world outside, if you will, outside of the, the church family or the covenant community. Biblical theology rightly balances our expectations between expecting too much in outreach to those who don't know Jesus or demanding too little. So ex expecting too much, which uh, theologians would call an overrealized eschatology. You know what that means? Okay, so eschatology is, is the study of last things, right? And so eschatology is not, everybody, are you look, look at me. Eschatology is not the book of Revelation merely. Okay, it's, eschatology is the totality of what we're living in right now. We are in the last days. In the last days may last another 5,000 years. We don't know. These are the last days. And it's all headed towards this grand conclusion of new creation. Read Revelation 21 and 22 tonight if you've forgotten exactly what you're headed for. That's what you're headed for. And so we don't want to have an overrealized eschatology. In other words, we don't want to pull Revelation 21 and 22 and expect that's what's going to happen right now before Jesus comes back. That's overrealizing and having wrong expectations for what this life is going to look like. So I don't go out thinking, I'm going to conquer Salida for Jesus. I want to, <laughs> but I know if I'm going to, and I'm probably not because narrow is the way that leads to Jesus and broad is the path that leads to destruction. And so there's this sad tension in the Christian life that I live in that reality, even though God is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But I don't want to have, because if I have this over-realized kind of perfect triumphalistic view, I'm going to live in a constant state of discouragement <laughs> because of unrealized expectations. And biblical theology cures that because it helps me situate myself in the story that I'm living in, right? I also don't want to demand too little. Well, you know, it's, it's not Revelation 21 and 22 yet. Jesus hasn't come back yet. So we really can't expect all that much. I mean, look at us. Do we really have all that much to offer? What are the resources that we have? How skilled are we in this? Um, you know, we should probably, in order to try and reach people, we probably shouldn't, you know, preach so much about how they're going to have to change in their lives or like what Jesus is going to do to get in their business and just jack up their lives. Like we probably shouldn't do that. We should make it look a little easier than that. Good biblical theology will not promise our best life now. I'm sorry, Joel Osteen. <laughs> Whether that means health and wealth, transforming the city, winning the favor 
of those that we desire to curry favor with? The retaking of America? Biblical theology, good biblical theology, won't promise those things. At the same time, it does not shy away from engaging culture, seeking the good of our neighbors in deeds, for the sake of love and for justice. Some examples of this could look like, um, one, missions. It's for the last number of years. I think we're on the tail end of this, but the, the last number of years, there's been a lot of talk about kind of being the missional church, right? Like engaging the culture that that the church doesn't go on mission or, or send people out to do missions. Rather, the church is the mission of God in the world in order to heal the world and to reconcile people to God. Just like Jesus went out and, and fed people and healed people, so the mission of the church is to incarnate ourselves into culture and do good to others and bless them. So we should grab Jeremiah 21 and talk about how all those Jewish exiles were to care for the city of Babylon, and we're supposed to do the same. We're supposed to care for the city or grab verses in Matthew 5 about being salt and light or any passages on the incarnation to incarnate that ourselves. Any passage about Jesus feeding and healing people. Our, our mission as a church should be less about putting money into overseas missions and more into building houses for the poor, right? Because that's all that stuff's in the Bible, and that's really good. It's about social justice and, and the transformation of all of those norms in the culture. That's why we're here, right? How are you going to know whether that's right or not? And I think there's no question that we should go and be salt and light in the world. Jesus commanded it. And there's no question that God is a missionary God. He went on mission starting in Genesis 3. He moved, it's no question that God is incarnational. He moved into this neighborhood called Earth and sought us out. But we must notice that the whole Bible's emphasis on the coming of Jesus, is to do what Adam and Israel could not do. Notice how the Gospels themselves emphasize, first and foremost, who Jesus is and how the epistles call us to be united to Jesus by faith. The whole Bible emphasizes the utter uniqueness of Jesus. That's what the miracles point. He's feeding people, yes, because he loves them and he has compassion for them, but he's exemplifying to them, I am the Son of God. I am turning back what has gone wrong. This is not the way it's supposed to be. I'm here to show you the kingdom is at hand. I am the kingdom I'm breaking in. I'm starting a work that I will consummate in Revelation 21 and 22. So the most important thing that the church can do for the world is not anything that the church can do for the world. The church cannot die for the sins of the world or heal the nations or usher in directly the kingdom of God. And at the same time, when we sing Wren Collective, build your kingdom here and that we are the hope of the world. We are the hope in the world of the world because we are the means by which the world knows Jesus. It's the message that we are proclaiming. So yes and amen to love and acts of de and deeds of service and, and transformation, but not at the expense of pointing to the one who did and is doing all of this. And there's such a danger, family. 
that, that we think we're the ones. We've got to let that go. We have to trust that the Father's going to work through us. I can tell you, I, am, I have never been happier as an elder than I am at Grace Church. We have deacons and elders who know this, who know this is about what God is going to do. We have deacons and elders who, when we get together once a month on a Tuesday, the first thing we do is get in the Word and pray, which is an expression of our dependence on God. I serve with two other pastors who are constantly reminding me, it's not what I can do. It's what he can do. When I feel overwhelmed in ministry and by all the demands and the things that we're trying to accomplish, even as we try and keep it simple, it can still feel like a lot. I love when Jim, and Jim, whenever he wants to, you know, um, I always know kind of like a, a, a loving correction is coming my way because he'll, he won't call me pastor or he won't call me Matthew. He'll say, um, lead pastor. <laughs> like, oh man. It's just like when my mom was like, Matthew Eugene. <laughs> lead pastor, let, let's trust in the spirit. All right. <laughs> right. The church must proclaim the message of Jesus. It must make disciples of Jesus. The very fact, you see, this is what biblical theology teaches us, the very fact that all of Scripture centers on the person and work of Jesus helps us to see precisely what our mission is, to point to Christ, just like the Bible does. And of course, we point to him with our deeds but we must centrally point to him with our words. Jesus himself said multiple times, the reason I have come is to, we must go on to the next city because the reason I am here is to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. That's why I'm here. We are no different than Jesus. So we need more than little bits of text. We, we need to understand the whole story. Biblical theology is a guide to good corporate worship. It helps us know what to do when we gather as a church on a Sunday morning or other times. So, is David's loincloth Ark of the Covenant dance normative for church gatherings? It, it, it elicits a certain kind of image, doesn't it? How about the incense used by Old Testament priests or, or the use of instruments and choirs or making sacrifices for various holidays or the reading and explaining of the biblical test? A right biblical theology helps to answer what to bring into this era, this covenant that God is operating in now, and what to leave behind in the Old Covenant. I'm reading in Exodus right now. It's January, and so starting my Read Through the Bible plan, which I have something for you tonight. <laughs> um, 
And so I'm in Exodus. And yesterday morning, I was reading the instructions for the garments for the priests. So it's, it's all the tabernacle, right? If you've read that bit in Exodus. And, and uh, you know, there's a big part of me that's always wanted to be Presbyterian, Catholic. I mean, the, the great, they just have great hats and, you know, like, you walk down and they're doing incense before you. I mean, that'd be kind of cool. <laughs> the big scepter, you know, like holding that up. And I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff too, but I'm reading about these beautiful clothes and the beauty of the chest plate with the different jewels that reminded the priests of God's people whom he's serving and this turban and, and what really struck me and and took up my prayer walk for a half hour was a band around his head that held the turban in place and in, inscribed on the inside of the band were the words holy to Yahweh and I just immediately thought I wonder if integrity tattoo has an opening not on my forehead Because God chose to, there was a power in that. There was a reminder. But can you imagine every time that priest lifted that turban with that band to put on his head and he saw inscribed there, if he had forgotten, which of course he did because he's human. And how often, you guys, I have prayed and, and we've talked about even, and probably not enough, as elders, the single greatest, this is what Andrew Murray wrote, the single greatest gift I can give to my people is my own personal holiness. I should not be the best leader that you have. I should not be the best manager that you have. That is not what God has called me to. God has called me to be a holy man, a holy pastor. And that's what he was reminded of every time. Holy to Yahweh, you are sanctified, you are set apart, you are to be pure, you're representing me to the people and the people to me. You are this mediator between God and man. So what bits of that entire bit of Exodus as a pastor should be normative and a guide for worship and leading you in worship and what bits should not be? Biblical theology seeks to answer Questions like that, which of course depends on your view of an approach to the continuity and discontinuity between the old and the new covenant. Your understanding of Christ's work of fulfillment may be of old covenant principles in the new covenant and understanding, therefore, what Christ's gathered church has been authorized to do. We'll talk more about those in the next lesson. Biblical theology is a guide to good church structures. By the same token, the storyline of Scripture requires us to pay attention to our church structures. Should we baptize babies? Well, it depends on how much continuity you see between the Old Testament and the New. In other words, if, this, if the signs of the Old Covenant were circumcision, eighth day of a child, and Passover and the signs of the new covenant are baptism and communion, the meal that Jesus gave us, what level of continuity and discontinuity operate between those 
it's clear that there's a pattern there between those signs of the covenants. How tightly does the pattern hold? And as I just said, what about pastors? Is their job description similar to the Old Testament priests, or is it more like the prophets or, or the kings? The answer depends on questions of continuity and discontinuity, and how you see the whole story, as well as how prophet, priest, and king actually point most directly not to the pastor, but to Jesus. So the question might really be, how do pastors relate to Jesus and not Old Testament prophets, priests, or kings? What about church discipline? Is there something that we could learn from Adam and Eve's eviction from the garden when it comes to church discipline or Noah's Ark, the holiness laws being placed outside the camp, Israel's exile, Nehemiah's wall. What are things that we can learn and take if we understand the whole story to these ways in which we operate as a church? I'm not digging down deep into those. I'm just showing them as examples. So biblical theology as a discipline, as a reminder, is a way of reading the Bible that refuses to turn God's story into life's little answer book, but rather recognizes it as the grand story that gives our stories meaning. A story that increasingly defines who we are, where we've come from, and where we're going. Okay? So you, you always want, like, you're looking back and looking forward. That's, that's, that's what we do in life, right? That's what we're doing in the Bible. It's just looking back, looking forward and seeing how that whole timeline or plot line helps us understand where you're start standing right now today. All right? All right, and so ends week number two. Now, week number three. So before we do that, let's hand out So what I did, so this is a little messy, it's not really clean, because I just copied exactly what I'm using currently in my Bible. All right, so you have exactly how I've tried to structure. So you'll see all my OCD-ness, anal retentiveness, whatever label you want to put on, you know, freak, whatever. It's all right there, and I will, let me talk you through that. I'm going to wait until it gets out to all of you. While that's getting out, um, I wanted to point out, so this is a, I hope this seminar will be a great way to understand biblical theology. You may want to be um, kind of reading, listening to people who are way smarter than me, uh, older than me, been at this longer, um, or you may want to continue to supplement what you're learning here. And so I brought a, a few of my favorite um, books on biblical theology. I, I think for a contemporary take on this, so Justin Buzzard, he's a pastor in uh, Southern California, and this is called The Big Story. And then I love the subtitle because he really does make it extremely practical, how the Bible makes sense out of life. And so he gives you that, he, he does it in, in terms of um, creation, rebellion, uh, rescue, redemption, and then he has an intermission, <laughs> and then new creation, and, and kind of actually the first place he takes you to is who is God, because that's where it all, I mean, before even creation, there's God, right? So we should probably add that to our little grid. Um, before anything was, God is. Um, and so this is a really, really great book, The Big Story by Justin Buzzard. Um, 
I think one of the greatest biblical theologians of all time is Graham Goldsworthy. And so this is a three-volume work in one volume, the, Graham, uh, the Goldsworthy Trilogy. So um, Gospel and Kingdom, Gospel and Wisdom, and the Gospel and Revelation. So he gives you an entire structure with that. If you wanted something really thin and little and easy, a walk through the Bible with Leslie Newbigin. Um, he is an Australian, if I'm recalling correctly. Uh, so this is, uh, this is a tad dated. I think there's some new scholarship and understanding and work in the field of biblical theology since Newbigin wrote this, but a really helpful little work. And um, a, one, a smaller version of Goldsworthy would be According to Plan, the Unfolding Revelation of God in the Bible. This is just a, a really great work by Graham. And then Vaughn Roberts, God's Big Picture, Tracing the Storyline of the Bible. So you can see they're all striking that same theme. They come at it from slightly different ways, but all just the, the basic understanding of how do we make our way through this big story. So if you want to come up afterwards and look at any one of these, uh, you're more than welcome to do that. All right, so you've got in front of you this little... So this is, again, this is from the books of the Bible uh, that... Um, that version of the Bible that I told you about, you can get it, I think it's still available on Amazon. I, I didn't, I forgot to look this afternoon. Um, <clears throat> and so what it does, as you can see, is it breaks it out into the main aspects of the story. So covenant history, the prophets, uh, an invitation to the writings. Uh, you'll see that I, I changed it because I put there under the writings, move chronicles, uh, because that should be read last in the Old Testament because it's a, a recapitulation of the story thus far. And so I, I've got a note to myself to move that to be read last in the Old Testament. And then like I described to you, it Luke-Acts is really a one-volume work, right? And so you get the entirety of Jesus coming, calling disciples, dying, rising, ascending, and then sending the Holy Spirit into the world and the kingdom of God advancing through the book of Acts. And you see Paul and all of his missionary journeys. So you get all of that history of essentially the entirety of the New Testament. And then instead of in order of length, now you have Paul's epistles in the chronological way in which they flowed out. So you read Luke Acts. Like I said, you've got that framework now in your head. And now you start reading those churches that he's writing back to you. That you heard about him in Acts going like, he went there and then he came back strengthening all the churches, right? And then he's, now he's writing back to them to do what? Strengthen those churches again through his writings. Uh, and then you've got Matthew, Hebrews, and James put together. So you read Matthew and then Hebrew and James, which are, are really um, largely Jewish in nature and feel. And so that's why those three are together. And see, what you're doing then is you're sprinkling, you're giving yourself time between the biographies of Jesus to kind of, okay, I read Matthew and instead of going right to Mark, I'm going to read some of that other kind of Jewish type literature. Now I'm going to go to Mark and I'm going to get the story of Jesus again. And then we believe that um, Mark uh, probably talked to Peter to get uh, a lot of his information for his biography of Jesus. And so it makes sense to put first and second Peter with Mark and then Jude. Well, we just don't know what to do with it. He's all by himself. And so we didn't want him to be alone. And so we put him there in the Markan corpus. And then the Johannine corpus is now all together. So you read John's biography of Jesus and then his three letters and then the revelation of John. And what I do, um, oh, and so you know, uh, 
part of what you want to do to to get this to always have the story in front of you is um, you want like a resource that's helping you along the way as you're going through each of these areas of the scriptures. So one of the really cool things, for example, about this Bible, uh, the books of the Bible, is they have, so there'll be a, um, there's an article actually in the Bible that talks about the covenant history moment, and then there's an introduction to the Pentateuch, for example, and then an introduction to Genesis, and it's written from a biblical theological framework. So it's writing it to help situate that work with the rest of the story of the Bible versus like some study Bibles have a real systematic theological framework. They want you to kind of understand doctrines like we talked about the difference between systematic and biblical theology. Um, this is written from a real biblical theological framework. Or, um, so it, does anybody have an ESV study Bible? Okay, so that would be an example of a systematic theology study Bible. That's really the way that that Bible is structured. Zondervan's... Um, study Bible, uh, NIV study Bible, is written totally from a, a biblical theological framework. So all of the articles, all of the introductions, all of the notes is written from a view and through a lens to try and always have the entirety of the story of God in front of you as you're in each of the bits. So it's really helpful to have something like this that can be helping you try to see things in that grid. Um, so, and you can come up and look at that afterwards if you want as well. And then if you just really want to get into the details, so I want to read, um, the books of the Bible is, um, is New International Version. And I want to read in the Christian Standard Bible. And so I just have this. Um, so he, here's my reading and preaching Bible. So I just have this in the front. Um, oh, and the other thing you can do, right, is uh, the Bible Project. So the Bible Project is also incredibly biblical theological in, in approach. It's a unified story that leads to Jesus, right? Okay, so when you read, when, you, when you're going to read Genesis, uh, so for example, they have the Torah series. So they have two videos on Genesis and two videos on Exodus and then, um, and then a video each on the rest of the Pentateuch. You can, before you read Genesis, watch those two videos. And then, and then what I do, and they also have a video on the Old Testament, so what I do to keep it, the story in front of me is you can print out at the end of the video, right? It's a little poster. So I print out, so this is Tanakh, because that's for like the Old Testament. And then, I, so currently, right, I'm in Exodus. So I have the little, because visual like is so helpful and I'm a visual learner, it just really helps me. So then I print out the Exodus poster. I've got that in my Bible. It's always there at hand to be able, when I'm reading uh, any particular book of the Bible. And then, uh, because this isn't, this isn't laid out the same way as this, right? So I just took how many pages are in this Bible from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22. I wanted to give myself two grace days a week. So that's how many, I don't know, I can't do math. I did the math. What I can tell you is that it all resulted in I need to read six pages of this Bible, this copy of the Bible, per day, five days a week, and I'll make it through the entire story in 2023. And so then every week, because I'm, you know, anal, I have my little reading plan for that seven days, 
and at the beginning of the week, I write down each day, here's the pages that I have to read each day, right? Because I got to figure it out because I'm jumping around in here. But I know if I read six days or six pages a day, I'm going to read through the whole Bible. And then I give myself grace days because I'm a perfectionist and I know I'm going to miss a day and then I'm going to be just like an angst until I catch up. And so grace days are awesome. They're just awesome. So my grace days are Thursday when I write the sermon and Sunday when I come to the church gathering because I'm getting lots of Jesus on those days anyway, right? And you could just, your, your plan could be, I want to read through the Bible in 18 months and then it's this many pages a day or I want four grace days or I want to read it in 24 months. I just want you to read through the entire Bible if you've never read through the entire Bible before. I got to tell you, I'm shocked at how many people have not read the entire Bible. I mean, like, if you've been in the church for a long time. Like, if you're, if you're brand new to this whole thing, I'm not shocked. Okay, I get it. I get it. I get why your Bible reading plan died in Leviticus. You just didn't understand. I get it. And you were tired of hearing about entrails because you're not a butcher. Okay, so fair enough. Um, all right, so it's a little after 7 o'clock. Uh, do you guys feel like... This is totally unfair, but I don't know a better way to do it, so I'm just going to be unfair to you, and it can be awkward. Um, and this is just immediate feedback for the teacher. Do you feel like, I'd really like you to be ending at about 7, or it's okay if you go till 7.15? Are we a 7.15? Well, 7.15 lets you pick up kids. Yeah. Yeah, if I let you out at 7.15, you're good with your kids. Is that all right? Okay, I just didn't want to, you know, I mean, if you're like, dude, enough with like 70 minutes of teaching every Wednesday night. All right, let's go then. We're going to start week three. Now that we have studied what biblical theology is, that was week one, and we've seen how it can function as a guardian and guide for the church, we're going to look at some tools that are part of working out biblical theology in the grand story of the Bible. We're right on the cusp of like digging in there for some themes. I just, I don't know about you. I can't wait to start digging in some themes. It's going to be so fun. Um, so these basic fundamental Bible reading and study tools are going to help, help us keep uh, working through the various storylines and themes found in the story of the scriptures. So part of how I want you to think about this course seminar, just to try and give you analogies, is, is like if you, Maybe in, in high school or in college, you took a class on American literature or English literature, right? And what that class was trying to do is give you tools on how to read American literature and English literature because those are different genres or literary forms and they have certain rules and guidelines and contexts and histories. And that's what we're doing, right? I, this class is just trying to give you a basic framework for how you approach this, this story in the Bible. Because you are those who desire, right? Again, and I just want to keep saying this. This is not an end. This is a means. It's, it's a doorway. The reason that we're here is because we want to know more about God. We want to know more about our Father and His Son and the Holy Spirit. We want to enter into the simple pleasure of discovering him and what he means for our lives. What he means for our lives in the grand sweep of that story that you're going to draw of your life and in the nitty-gritty of going home tonight 
in doing whatever you do, how does that matter to God? How does it connect to God? When I go home tonight and I eat a mini banana nut chocolate chip muffin <laughs> with extra crunchy natural peanut butter <laughs> and whole milk, not skim milk because that's not milk. It's just white water. That's all it is. Whole milk. The way that God intended milk to be. Is it drunk? Drank? <laughs> what, what, is, what does that have to do with God? What does that moment have to do with God? Oh my goodness, yes. God made the cow. That makes the milk. He made bananas, the only thing that comes with its own packaging in nature. Like just, it's right there and you just, and chocolate, he made chocolate, you guys. Seriously. And sugar, right? And peanuts that can be turned into peanut butter that have peanuts in the peanut butter, which is the way God intended. <laughs> and he gave me taste buds that just like, enjoy all of that so that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do give glory to god god gets glory in my enjoyment of a mini banana nut chocolate chip muffin that my 16 year old son made to enjoy my son who can make muffins when i can't <laughs> so we want to give some tools think of it like couple of toolboxes with a few tools in them. These are not exhaustive. Just giving you so that you have these to take out and use when you take up and read. So we're going to talk about exegetical tools. And I gave you a couple of those last time. I'll give you some different ones this time. Um, exegetical tools help us to understand a text in its context and the author's one original intent. And think of exegetical tools as having a slight emphasis on the human author. Okay, it's not mutually exclusive, but a slight emphasis on the human author. Because I'm trying to understand what he's saying. Yes, he's inspired by the Spirit, but what was his one intended meaning? And then we're going to talk about storyline tools, which help us discern, discern where a text fits into the storyline of the whole Bible and how it contributes to leading us to Jesus. And so think of these as having a slight emphasis on the divine author who is inspiring the human author. So first, um, exegetical tools. Now, kind of the overarching truth that I want to give you about exegetical tools is, and, and I've told you this many times, but I'm just going to keep beating on it so it's in your head. Context is king. Context is king. Text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Please write that down. A text, all the first semester people are like, yeah, we got this. <laughs> totally know that. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Right? It's just, all that's saying is, if you, if you pull a text out of its context, What's a, a pretext? It's before you're on your way. You're right stepping before using that text that you just pulled out 
to prove something that that text was not intended to show, or at least not primarily. So context is king. Meaning is not just the property of words. It's the property of sentences. And, and it's actually not just the property of sentences. It is the property of paragraphs. If you want to know the author's one intended meaning, you have to pay close attention to words and sentences and paragraphs and the whole story. And that's what we do with exegesis. We pay attention to words and sentences and paragraphs. Exegesis is the disciplined attempt to draw out of a text the author's original intent rather than your own preference or experience or opinion. That's eisegesis. You shoved that in there before you went to the Bible study. And you got to the Bible study and you read the text and you're like, here's what that means. And you pulled out your preconceived notions. And everyone went, ooh, ah, because they didn't know exegesis. That they were supposed to search for the author's one intended meaning. Jerome, an early church father, put it this way. The office of a commentator is to set forth not what he himself would prefer, but what his author says. This is why we do, in the main, expository preaching at Grace Church. Because I don't get to pick what I get to preach this Sunday. Paul does. Last Sunday was Romans, what was last Sunday? 1 to 12. Romans 4, 1 to 12. This week, it's 13 to 25. It's the next text, whether I like it or not. Whether it's easy or difficult. What is the next text? And this is what all of us actually generally want to do. We exegete a variety of texts. We look at a cookbook and try and understand what that person intended with this recipe. To instruction manuals. I mean, women look at those. Men don't, but women do. <laughs> to Sports Illustrated, your favorite blog. You're attempting to get at what the author wants you to get at. So, tool number one. Tool number one for this process is the grammatical historical method, which sounds really scary, but it's not. This just seeks to answer the question, what does that paragraph mean? So you start with a grammatical and structural analysis of the text. How does the larger text break up into units? What's the subject, the verb, and the object? How do they relate? Oh, Mrs. Perlinger, I'm so sorry that I said sentence diagramming would never be of use to me the rest of my life in eighth grade. She was right. Grammar's important. How are the sentences connected? What's the general flow of the argument? Turn in your Bible to Romans, please. We'll be able to do this for just a little bit. We'll pick it up next week. Okay, so Sunday the text is Romans 4, 13 to 25. So you can be reading ahead. So if you start to read through Romans 13, let's say... Verses 13, 14, and 15. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, 
but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified because the law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, for most of my life, I would read a passage like that and I just had the scantest of understandings of maybe definitions of certain words. Maybe someone had preached a little bit on Romans. But the goal, right, of Bible reading was to just get it done. I just need to read a chapter this morning because that's what Christians do. So I read my chapter, I pray, and I go on for the rest of my day, which results in absolutely no transformation in my life. So instead, grammatical historical approach says, what's the grammar here? Start to break it down. One of the best ways you can do this, you guys, is to write the text out. Like, if you're reading through a chapter and then, like, pray for God. So this is kind of like my wife's strategy at the very beginning, right? Treat, that, treat your Bible reading the same way. What's the one thing I'm going to take from my Bible reading today? That's what I'm on the hunt for. I might not understand these two chapters that I read or however many pages you've decided. I might not understand all of them. But in the context of this story, God, in Exodus, what do you want? Or Romans, wherever you are, what do you want me to understand? So I can take that one little piece of the scripture that I understand the best I can in the 20 minutes that I had this morning as a, like a little spiritual lozenge under my tongue that's impacting my soul for the rest of the day. That's what I want to do. One of the best ways you can do that is, is go down to uh, Safeway, go to the office supply area, buy some four by six cards, and whatever, like when that gets revealed to you, so maybe it's 13 to 15, now rewrite that down on that four by six card in your own hand and start to write it in lines. The promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, Oh, that, that's, a, that's a prepositional, it was not through the law, but through righteousness. So I want to put those on two separate lines. It's not one thing, but, oh, that's a conjunction, and it's a contrasting conjunction, not like and. It was, it was not through the law and through the righteousness. That would be different. He'd say something different if he said and. No, he said but, which is a contrasting statement. So I'm going to put that on a separate line, and I want to see, oh, well, maybe those relate some kind of way. So what does it mean? That the promise doesn't come through the law, but it comes through the righteousness that comes by faith. Didn't he just say something about that? Oh yeah, faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. Well, I should come back to that later in verse 9. Then I'll write down the next line. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified because the law produces wrath. Wait a second, I thought the law was supposed to help me and it was supposed to make me be a better person. How can it produce Wrath. I'm just going to write that question in the margin because I've broken that. If, if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made. Have you ever heard of an if-then statement? It sounds like an if-then statement, doesn't it? If those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made empty and the promise nullified. How? See, I'm breaking it down into parts. And now I'm what, it, what was the, I told you, what's the greatest tool after prayer that you have in your Bible study? What's the greatest tool? Ask questions. It's all I do all week long to get ready for Sunday is ask questions. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
What? What does that mean? So I'd write that question. Now I've got my four by six card. My alarm just went off. I got to get ready. It's time to head to work. But now every time I have a little spare moment, instead of my brain going to Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or whatever, blog, my phone. Do you know the average person looks at their phone over 4,000 times a day? Or maybe it's six. It might be six. Okay, what if you had a four by six card with a piece of scripture that you had done some very rudimentary breakouts on, just broken out the grammar, asked a couple questions. What if what you were going to 4,000 times a day was that four by six card? You just pull that out. Okay, what? I, I still don't know what that means. Where there is, where there is no law, there is I wonder if there's something, I wonder if there's a difference between sin and transgression. I wonder if there's a difference between iniquity and transgression. I wonder if there's a difference between guilt and transgression. That might be part of the answer. Does that make sense? That's just the beginning. We got more to do, and I'm over time. So let me, um, but read, will you? Because it would be so fun for you to come in having read on Sunday morning, 4.13 4, to 25, just doing that, starting to break it up. And then you can see, like, you might have questions that I didn't answer. And then you'll be sitting there like, dude, you completely didn't answer the most obvious question there is in this text. And then you can come up and ask, ask me. Or you can give me the answer to the question. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you so much. It is so exciting so exciting to grow. So exciting to learn and to be sharpened with one another. Father, continue to use um, the things that we're learning here together to show us more of you, to make us more like Jesus. Because as we learned this last week, we know when that happens, we're going we're gonna to be happy. We're going to be happy. Thank you so much. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be up front here if you have any questions, you want to look through any of this stuff, I'll stay here as long as anybody wants to be around.